0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Oh, my name is Kirsten Ellsworth, and I am a host for the Art Channel on the New Books Network, New Books and Art. And today I am very much looking forward to speaking with the co-editors and a contributor for a very recently published book, Unsettling Native Art Histories on the Northwest Coast published by the University of Washington Press in 2020 and the Bill Holmes Center for the Study of Northwest Native Art Burke Museum in Seattle. I would like to start our conversation today by having our participants introduce themselves so we know a little bit about the complexity and all the different voices that came into this book. So let's hear from the participants.
0: Well, hi, Kristen. It's wonderful to be here today. Thank you so much for inviting all of us. I'm Katie Bunmarcus, and I'm a settler scholar who lives in uh, the Coast Salish Territory, specifically in Seattle on Duwamish Territory, uh, and also the shared lands and waters of the Suquamish, Muckleshoot, Tulalip uh, nations. And so I am the curator of Northwest Native Art at the Burke Museum, uh, the director of the Bill Holmes Center for the Study of Northwest Native Art and an assistant professor in the Art History Department, uh, and was really overjoyed to co-edit this book with Aldona Genitis. Um, and I'm so glad that we have one of our contributors, Sharon Fortney, with us today. Um, and I look forward to talking more about the book. Uh, Katie, maybe you could give uh, us a, a brief bio on Aldona since her audio is a little off. So Aldona Janaitis is one of the leading um, scholars in our field, and she has been involved in the field of Northwest Coast art history for many decades. Uh, She is the director emerita of the University of Alaska Museum of the North. Her PhD is from Columbia University. She was a professor and an administrator at Stony Brook University and also vice president at the American Museum of Natural History uh, where she put on such formative exhibits as uh, Chiefly Feast, um, which was about the Kwakwaka'wakw Potlatch collection there. Um, and she has other important books, Art of the Northwest Coast, which is being currently republished in a new edition by University of Washington Press, uh, and a great book called The Totem Pole, An Intercultural History, which was edited with Erin Glass. And she's currently working on a book about contemporary Clinkett
2: artists. Thank you. And Sharon, will you introduce yourself? Sure, so my name is Sharon Fortney. I'm the curator of Indigenous Collections and Engagement at the Museum of Vancouver in Canada. And I have CLAHUS and German ancestry, uh, Clahoose being Northern Coast Salish uh, First Nation. And um, so I've been working in the Vancouver area for many years um, in the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and tsleil people. And um, I'm just really happy to be invited to come and speak with you today. Well, we're really
1: happy to have you, all of you here. And let's start by asking what motivated you to bring this book to life?
0: Well, this book um, started at actually a conference in 2017 at the Native American Art Studies Association, which we call NASA, uh conference in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and there were several sessions on Northwest Coast art history, new research in the field that were hosted uh, and led by Aldona Genitus. And at the end of those sessions, um, Aldona and I were talking and we were just talking about how different this conference felt in terms of the research that was being presented. Uh, and that we felt that that maybe this was the The moment to put out a new book uh, on research in Northwest Coast art history. And so many of the contributors to this book presented in that original conference. But it's not just that. It was, uh, we opened it up to many other contributors who are working across the Northwest Coast, looking for a real diversity of voices people who are coming from their jobs in museums, um, but also their positions in community as community historians. Um, artists who were writing not about their own practice, but writing as experts in their own fields, being uh, mostly women, uh, but also some men who know about the cultural and aesthetic heritage of their community. And so we brought all of those people together. Um, and and th- that's how this book came about. As a contributor, Sharon, would you like to
1: add anything about um, what made you want
2: to contribute um, to the volume? Yeah, I was recently hired, I think, at the Museum of Vancouver when I was invited um, to participate in the project, and so um, I thought it was a nice way to bring attention to the Museum of Vancouver's collection, which had been kind of hidden from the public for many years, the Indigenous belongings that are at that museum, so I, I saw it as a really good way to raise some awareness about that collection. Um, and to, to talk about some of the reconciliation principles that the museum was trying to enact at the time. As a reader of the book, I would like to say that what
1: um, Katie and Sharon are talking about is so strongly present in the book. You have such a diverse group of voices, um, people involved with collections, artists. Um, it's, it's a much thicker tapestry or it's such a well-developed tapestry. and. Maybe I could ask you um, in the introduction to the book, you mentioned that there are current ethics in your field, and you've alluded to the, you know, there are ethical issues. And one that I thought was really striking, which uh, is, which I think you've referred to, is that Indigenous artists, scholars, and communities are the experts on their own histories. Could you talk to us a little bit more about this position that you're taking? In the book
0: and in your own work? Sure, I'll start. And then I think Sharon can probably bring in some wonderful um, examples from the Museum of Vancouver. Um, So we wanted to note that this is one of the things that not only do all of us who work in the field um, understand now as new practice, but that we really saw this come out in the papers and in the work um, from people who were invited to contribute to the book. And as in many fields where academia has engaged with uh, communities that have lived under colonialism, oftentimes their histories have been either filtered through white academic voices, often male, um, or just entirely interpreted by them. Um, And so we wanted to show that the current ethics in our field recognize this fact that the indigenous artists and scholars and communities are the experts, Um, and that that our job, if you are a non-Native scholar, is to work very carefully with community in collaboration, with respect, uh, in relationships. And really, if you're working with older archival pieces, um, to work with community members to make sure that you can put those in the proper historical and indigenously-informed context to bring that material forward. Um, sure. So Sharon, do you wanna pitch in maybe with some particular examples sure. from museums in terms so of in Canada you know, right the, now, the collection?
2: Yeah, and in Canada right now, I would also like to add like, there's a big trend right now towards hiring indigenous curators. And um, being in one of those roles myself, I find, um, there, there's a tendency for people to expect you to be able to speak to all Indigenous issues, um, you know, sometimes without the consultation that's required. And I just like to say that positioning is really important and being aware um, of what you should and shouldn't speak to. Um, like, I'm very comfortable talking about my family, my family history, but um, when it comes to working in Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Tooth Territory, Um, how do I speak about the collections and the belongings? Um, I have to really, you know, be mindful of how I'm representing somebody else's history. So I think positioning is really important. And I think that comes through in the book as well, um, where we're seeing more Indigenous scholars, uh, curators, writers, um, speaking to their own communities, um, and giving a balance to that sense of identity that was missing in the past, Whereas, um, you know, identity, Michael Ames always used to say was, you know, how you see yourself, but also how others see you. And for so long, there's been an imbalance in um, how identity, Indigenous identity has been portrayed, uh, you know, with the outside view being given more emphasis than the internal view. So I, I like th- um, the balance that this book is bringing to Indigenous art history on the Northwest Coast.
1: As a reader... Um, I was struck by just described as balance. And I also felt I was sort of had in my hands something a little bit radical because I I got to uh, read first-person accounts and learn about families and hear um, things presented, as you said, from an insider's points of view. And I think for those who are interested in this field, the book really does challenge some concepts with which a lot of art historians and others are just too familiar. And with that said, I I wondered if you could explain some of the concepts that drive the analysis in particular settler colonization and decolonization and how those themes frame the
0: project. Sure. Um, I can take a stab at that. So, Settler colonialism um, is a particular historical and social formation of colonialism. So characterized by outsiders who claim indigenous land as their own, right? So that's the settlers. Um, and it's an ongoing system of power. Um, and it, it still exists. It perpetuates um, the damage that has been done. Um, and continues to um, happen under settler occupation. Um, We can look at the exploitation of land and natural resources um, on the territories that Indigenous people have their long genealogical and and, uh, long land relationships with. Um, And so the book really asks the question of how do we unsettle art history or particularly in this case, native art history on the Northwest coast. And so from my perspective um, is as a settler scholar is that that means I have to change the kind of relationship that academics have sometimes had with indigenous communities and take direction from people within communities themselves. So as a curator, I do this, but also as a academic researcher. And so, that kind of unsettling can take a bunch of different forms. It can take the form of re-examining previous scholarship, which is, that's not a new thing for art history or any historians. Of course, that's an established part of scholarly practice. But the unsettling work is that you have to be actively aware of the both past and then the ongoing effects of settler colonialism. So that means you have to really listen and learn and act in ways that respect and uphold indigenous priorities and so that's really sort of the new call and hopefully the book um, reflects some of that.
1: Um, I'll add to that. I would say most definitely for those who are going to read the
2: book you, yes. Oh, sure, I was just going to add uh, a little bit about decolonizing museums, and I think um, the work that I've been doing at the Museum of Vancouver—we're working on that on a number of fronts. Like, it's not just about, uh, you know, having Indigenous people tell their own stories in the exhibitions, but also about providing access to the collection, whether it's physical access to come into the storage room and spend time with the belongings or um, whether it's digitizing the collection and making it accessible on the website so people can see what's there. And also another way we're trying to decolonize our museum is to have um, Indigenous representatives on our board of directors. So um, since I've been at the museum, we've actually recruited uh, board members from each of our host nations. So about a quarter of the board is now Indigenous. um, And that really helps I think to um, challenge and question things that we would normally take for granted in how we operate our, our institution. Um, to find other ways of doing things and to make uh, the museum more accessible. And one other way we do that also is through um, complementary admission to self-identifying Indigenous people so that um, people who have been denied access to their heritage, you know, they don't have to pay to come in and see it in our galleries.
1: To return to something uh, both have mentioned about power dynamics, the examples of changing the board and the access to the collections are such important ways to actually make a powerful shift, not just to talk about a change and um maybe we could talk a little bit now about some of the art that and that you t- that you cover in the book with all these um, diverse uh, contributors and um maybe the I think the question of and it goes right through the academic history and everything, Um, this concept of replication that you discuss in the book and whether non-Native artists should make Native-styled art and how that's played out in our understandings. Would you um, address that topic of replication?
0: Well, I wish that we could hear Aldona because um, she and Janet Burlow were the authors for that particular chapter. Um, This is a history, particularly in Seattle, that's been very difficult. There have been a lot of non-native carvers carving in Northwest Coast style in Seattle. Um, And it has been an interesting situation over the years. Some of it grew out of close relationships with indigenous communities, where non-native artists were working closely, and some still do, and spend a lot of time teaching and mentoring, learning they had learned from older carvers in community, um, and are really involved in respectful and reciprocal relationships. There are other situations in which non-native artists and carvers uh, and others are benefiting um, and taking market share, making money on other people's cultural aesthetics. Uh, and that is really an affront uh, to the people whose aesthetic systems this are. And it's taking money out of the the, the market. Uh, and it's something that in the United States, there is a law that uh, demands that galleries identify who is an Indigenous artist and who is not. There isn't a similar law in Canada, but there's actually a much stronger um, public and I think community pressure to keep non-Native artists uh, from taking this Indigenous heritage as their own. So on the one hand, there have been some idiosyncratic particular situations where communities have been all right with some of these people. And for the most part, this has become a large problem, uh, particularly across Canada and in the United States, of appropriation on a large and small commercial scale.
2: Um, sure. Sharon, I would you um, add also in on like that? to add that we're talking about it as though it's just art. And often there's other things at play um, with Indigenous like uh, visual expression. Like There can be um, like stories um intellectual property um things that pass through families um or clans or belong to specific communities um that you know are not necessarily public knowledge to everyone and so we we sort of i'm not expressing this very well but what i guess i'm trying to say is that um, if we just look at it as copying or, you know, art, it's it's not just art sometimes, there's um, intangible heritage involved in it. So um, it's actually um, taking something from the community and using it in a way that it isn't intended without really knowing the full story behind it or having the right to tell that story. So I think um, it's an intellectual property issue um, on a large scale that people are objecting to when, when we see indigenous non-Indigenous artists uh, recreating Indigenous artworks and designs.
1: And related, um, something I was very interested in, in the book is the way that there might have been a, a construct that there was a sort of a rebirth of Indigenous cultural practices, visually based, as uh, you're saying, Sharon, after a decline and that some somehow this this setup was proposed and drove more production of more objects would you
2: speak to that um either of you this renaissance idea um in canada i would say like there was a big resurgence of um cultural identity in the 70s after the federal government released um the white paper which basically declared um Uh, indigenous people in Canada to be assimilated. So there was a real big pushback um, from communities in response um, to that white paper. Um, There was a red paper and then there was like a sort of a resurgence in um, indigenous cultural education practices throughout the province. And uh, we saw like on the coast, we saw places like um, Kassan School, pop up where uh, printmaking and other new forms of cultural production started to emerge. Um, I think that people were ready to um, take back what they felt they had lost at that time. And so people were actually uh, going to museums and using the collections to study, um, you know, to bring back some art forms that were lost. And we see that in Vancouver with Coast Salish art in particular, where it was kind of silenced for many, many years. And um, there was a, a powerful exhibition in the 1980s by, um, at the Museum of Anthropology uh, that was curated by Michael Q. And he he studied Coast Salish collections around the world and he took photographs uh, and documentation and brought them back to the Vancouver area. And artists like um, the Musqueam artist, Susan Point, were able to access those slides and study these older belongings all around the world and um, initially, through copying, you know, as prints or um, other media, they they started to understand that that style again. And now you see, we're in a period where people are very comfortable now with that style of artwork, and we're seeing it um, flourish and go in new directions, which I think is really exciting.
0: And I would um, jump in with a little bit of more background, particularly for American um, audiences who do not. Necessarily have the historical background that in Canada the potlatch was outlawed from eighteen eighty five to nineteen fifty one and that was a time under you know the the potlatch was a system of governance um and and also ceremony and it was the um, context for a lot of the ceremonial arts on the northwest coast to be made and used and because it was Actively prosecuted, and people from from some parts of the coast went to jail. Um, That system was not allowed to be in place. Now, in some places, it continued underground. People found other very resilient ways to carry on their stories, their ceremonies, their beliefs. But in other ways, it was, um, it hugely damaged the ability to carry those things on. The boarding schools that were put in place that, Abused children and kept them from speaking their language, all of these things put huge pressure on the making of arts um, and that traditional mentorship uh, process and the context for using art within community. And so um, as Sharon's talking about, when the the potlatch ban was dropped in the early 1950s and people started to potlatch again. Uh, and then you move into this uh, resurgence of the 70s and after that Sharon mentioned, you do get a sense of that there was less art making in some communities, the understanding of what those traditional aesthetics for years and years and their connection to all of the intangible property that Sharon mentioned, those things were under great pressure um, and, and there was great damage done. And and in the seventies and then the late 20th century and continuing on to today, you see such a huge blossoming of that. You see kids who now are able to grow up uh, in the big house or within ceremony learning um, from their elders who had been part of that boarding school and potlatch persecution time. Um, But things uh, are not perfect, but certainly, much different today, uh, and there is a huge resurgence of artwork. And as Sharon said, the the Salish um, has been incredibly underappreciated, and that's coming back in huge ways. And in, in Washington, if you move down to the Columbia River, that was also an a area where Northwest Coast art really was very much ignored um, and considered to be less than. Uh, and now that is also coming back uh, with a number of really important artists uh, and large public commissions, and also community use on the Columbia River as well.
1: It's encouraging, and um, I think readers will will really catch the connection between the different times that you're describing, and how now we have through this book uh, a methodology for making sure that research matches practices. And there's a significant part of the book devoted to gender. And I wondered if you would um, speak about how maybe the colonial definitions of gender impacted arts and how that might be changing as the process of decolonization takes place.
0: That is a really important part of this book. Um, it's uh a part of Northwest coast art history that I'm really devoted to supporting and women's artistic creations are highly treasured and valued within first nations communities on the Northwest coast. And yet they've been long discounted by collectors and scholars. Uh, And one of the reasons for that is because of the patriarchal uh, and Eurocentric conceptions of what is great art right? So those categories have often been described as painting, sculpture, and architecture, um, as you well know, Kristen. And those categories aligned quite well with the public arts on the northern Northwest coast. So the large totem poles, painted house fronts, um, carved boxes, even masks, those things aligned well with the Western conceptions of great art, and they were widely collected by early anthropologists and museum exhibition, um, museum expeditions. Uh, and so what happens is there's an incredible ripple effect from that. The a, a vast majority of collections are based on men's productions, the vast majority of research and particularly any names we know of artists from the past um, are attached to those men's productions. Uh, And then what happens is that when exhibits and publications come out of those collections, it makes it look as if the majority of uh, creations were made by men in those communities. When if you go to any gathering, perhaps the raising of a totem pole, for instance, you will see there is the totem pole and the big house, but everything everyone is wearing is made by the women in their communities.
1: One part of the book that I found so interesting and I know readers will want to hear more about is the section on gender. And I'm wondering if you could speak to um, one of the main points I extrapolated, which is that colonial definitions of male and female gender roles really impacted the collection of and understanding of for example, the Haida art and indigenous art overall?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's definitely something we wanted to address in the book. We have a whole section where Nika Collison and Luann Neal discuss just the exhibition of women's art at the Haida Gwaii Museum or the creations that Luann Neal's grandmother, Ellen Neal made and it's really important to think about what the colonial impact is and has been on art making on the Northwest Coast. So, for us, we wanted to recenter women in these artistic histories and make that a critical part of the book. So, one of the things we we're thinking about is the fact that the patriarchal conceptions of great art that exist in European, Euro American art history. Um, Things like the understanding that the great arts are painting, sculpture, and architecture really impacted what people collected on the Northwest Coast in the late 19th and early 20th century and before that. Um, And that really favored men's creations. And particularly on the northern Northwest Coast, where there was a tradition of big public male created, for the most part, artwork in terms of totem poles, house fronts, house screens, that really aligned with what uh, Western collectors thought of as the great arts. Um, And so that meant those are the things that filled museums. They are also then the things that went on exhibit, which meant they were then the things that were put into publications. And particularly before the internet, those publications were all of the historical records that people had to understand art on the Northwest coast. Uh, And so we wanted to address the fact that on the northwest coast men's and women's arts exist in balance and actually you can't really have one without the other you can't raise a totem pole without a public ceremony you can't have you people can't participate without being dressed correctly for that occasion uh, it's really important that you show up wearing whether it's the chill cat robes or the button blankets or aprons or all of the things that women make that are essential to those kinds of moments. And so we know that that historical bias against women exists uh, in collections and in the publication records, and we really wanted to address that um, in the book. And with that said, how do you feel um, this element of your
1: methodology and what is presented in the book, is, uh, is this appealing? I would think the answer is yes, but I'd like to hear more appealing to contemporary um, artists, men and women?
0: Well, I think so, because I think it's really important as we go back and we look through the historical record and through those museum collections, which, while they were centered a lot on men's work, do have the work of women, although they don't have as much collection information, people's names, where they came from, those things. But it's important when we look through all those records, we actually do see that women were um, making things Beyond what the colonial definitions of sort of the gender boundaries were, so some women were carving back in the day, um, and and that is very liberating, particularly for women now who are getting much more interested in carving, um, and and to understand that the gender expectations of art making were really calcified by the imposition of the patriarchal colonial system, um, and also. We know that, you know, women were always in the middle of all of the planning in the community. They were really holding a lot of those histories and passing them on to their children. And so women really helped to create and shape the cultural framework, even on the aspects of public art that was expressed by both um, men and women. We have the privilege
1: of meeting right now with Aldona Janaitis, who is the co-editor of the book. And Aldona, uh, would you introduce yourselves to our
3: listeners? Hi there. Thank you so much for inviting me. Um, My name is Aldona Janaitis, and I am the retired director of the University of Alaska Museum of the North. And I have worked on Northwest Coast art since the 1970s. So I have a very long overview of the history of the discipline. And that's one of the reasons that I wanted to work with Katie with this book, because so much has changed over the last 50 years in the scholarship of Northwest Coast Art.
1: As you look at the changes, do you feel encouraged by the different methodologies and approaches? (laughs) I, you know,
3: it, it's really interesting. It's a good question because I come and in my last essay, the last essay in the book is my essay looking over the last 50 years of Northwest Coast scholarship from the perspective of somebody who has lived through it and attempted to change over the years as the discipline changed. And I must say, the future can only be even better than it is now because. It used to be a very white, white-oriented, very patriarchal type of discipline that looked that that looked to what they called then traditional Northwest Coast art, i.e., art of basically the 19th century, as the authentic art of the um, of Northwest Coast Native people. This is not unique to the Northwest Coast, but um, but now the notion that the past was authentic and the present is inauthentic is absolutely bunk. And so we're looking now at art from the past from a different perspective, which is privileging the the aboriginal voice for their interpretations of that and accepting what's going on today as extraordinarily important expressions of contemporary Northwest Coast life and art. And one of the things that I'm I'm personally most thrilled about is the um, the new openness to fem- female art, because when I studied Northwest Coast art, in I, I wrote a PhD about Clingit art in the 70s. There was I didn't put I wasn't expected to put any basketry in there, um, very little textile other than Chilkat robes and You just didn't do women's art. Now, the notion that women have a very important say in the history and also that women's art embodies a whole different sphere of meaning, i.e. the meaning of nature, the cycle of nature, the complementarity of a woman's role and a man's role. Um, these are all elements within women's art that are so full of significance and meaning that in the past, when you had only male anthropologists studying this, they never even asked the question. So I am so optimistic about what the future is going to be in this discipline, because we can only go further.
1: It's so encouraging. And in the beginning of our conversation today, um, the other editor of the book and one of the contributors were talking about what motivated them to participate in the project, and as we think about the importance of this book in the field, I wonder if you could talk to us about your hopes for the the impact of the book. Which and you're a strong force in the project. So, what are your hopes for the book? Okay, uh, it's
3: an interesting question because. It goes, once again, back to my history. I was a, I'm a child of the 60s. And at that point, um, people like me and, and colleagues and, and students, friends, had an ethical um, commitment to, um, you know, promoting e- racial equality and promoting, to, to at, trying to get knowledge in the general public of the cultural achievements of indigenous people. Now, let's just let's just put aside the fact that that is a uh, there are issues, contemporary issues with that kind of attitude. But um, and as the time went on, I kept on saying, how can I do the most ethical scholarship for my own values? And I think that the notion of, of ethical scholarship, but I think Katie, Katie really talked a lot about this very eloquently. Ethical scholarship um, treats everybody as very equal, and they have an equal voice. And indigenous people have an even more authority to talk about a lot of the aspects of the art. And these are all ethical issues that have now become ingrained in the discipline when that is something that is just a, a thrill to see because not only are uh, scholars who you know were ha- have been and continue to be leftist and have this as part of their soul um but it's just become what people do and how people think about this and that's a sea change It's in Sea Change in Anthropology and Art History, and that is embodied in the essays in the book.
1: I think that listeners will hear your point about pursuing research that matches your values and should be encouraged and provoked to think about that in their own work. Um, I think that's a very empowering comment, and maybe we could ask you what your future projects are. Well, um, I live in Alaska. I'm in Fairbanks, Alaska,
3: and the Clinket live in Southeast Alaska. And I, I did my dissertation on them, and they went to various other um, communities. And the Clinket are a very large, large ethnic group um, in in Alaska, and or large tribal group in Alaska. And there are so many contemporary Clinket artists who are making a very large range of different kinds of art um, in a contemporary mode, um, in a mode that reflects the past. And so my work with collaborating with two people, Chris Green, who's a very young PhD in in art history and um, Ishmael Hope, who's a, a young Clinkit cultural leader, and a writer, we are three writing a book about contemporary Tlingit art. And I think the most important part of it is every artist that is that is represented in the book is going to be asked to choose his or her favorite piece and then write about it. And so the book will not only be edited by us, but also there will be 40 essays or selections by indigenous artists speaking in their own voice and i think that's that's kind of you know it, i have the ability to to edit things and and to get things through i would have, i'm a natural born administrator and my job there is to back up very very much use my knowledge of the history of clinkit art to add a historical dimension to this but give a framework for other indigenous people to speak about the things that matter to them. And that I think is the is the way non-native scholars today are making the best of their position and um how they can and the best way to proceed in this very exciting discipline.
0: And the other thing about
3: Northwest Coast I just have to tell you, I'm an artist It's gorgeous. It's Fabulous art! I know that that's something that is also you know pretty Western, but I love it. I started off talking about you know writing about it because it was so beautiful, and and I think a lot of the artists today are would agree with me that the past and the present and the future of the art is very beautiful.
1: I just feel excited about seeing this book when it comes uh, to fruition. Just I'm imagining the illustrations in the book, and also as I'm listening. The principles that all of you put into play in unsettling native art histories on the Northwest Coast, which we've been talking about today, are clearly spinning off another life in your next project. And that is very exciting. Um, and Aldona, I really want to thank you for joining us from Alaska today. And all of you have been terrific conversationalists. I know readers are going to be really interested in the book. And again, thank you.
3: You're welcome. It's been a pleasure.